Hello, hello, welcome to our Job to Stand podcast. If it is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you've been following the gang for a while, welcome back, my friend. This podcast showcases talented young scientists from different parts of the world who, with their undeniable passion for science, dedicated mindset, diligent work, and exceptional achievements in the STEM fields, are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. We also infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. The guests are ISAF, USIS, SIUS, RSI, and ITEM alumni. You can discover more about that on www.dropthestem.com, linked in our bio. If you enjoy listening to the episode and think this is worth tuning into, feel free to share it with others tagging the pod because we love seeing some supportive queens and kings. And now, let's jump right into the episode and discover who is gonna be dropping the stem today. Let us welcome now Nikhil Suresh, researcher in material science, fourth place grand award winner at Intelisef 2019 with his project presenting Hemodrop, a novel technology for microliter-sized blood droplets. Talking about drops, Nikhil is the VP, CFO, and co-founder of Microdrop Diagnostics, already having five products, several patents, and research papers. They are commercializing solid-state analysis of liquid samples congealed with InnovaDrop and Hemodrop technologies. He's also the winner of the Arizona State Stock Pitch Competition and a global semi-finalist. Above business, Nikhil presented his research work on a variety of platforms like the American Physical Societies or the International Conference on beam analysis and won several competitions let it be mathematics biology or science bowl nikhil is also a 2020 research science institute participant and his volunteering activities encapsulate helping at homeless shelters and tutoring kids develop essential mathematical skills a variety of interesting topics to discover on this episode and now Hello, Nikhil. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. On the podcast, we usually date back a little bit back in time, sort of a travel back in time, fasten those seatbelts. I'm wondering that, do you remember the moment the wonders of science, so to speak, captured you? So it was probably second or third grade, back in elementary school. My teacher, Miss Mensing, brought out these wires, a light bulb and some resistors, and we were kind of just playing around with circuits and getting to know like how the different types of circuits worked and trying to see if we could light up a light bulb and make it brighter or dimmer. And so I think that's when I first started getting into science because right after that, my mom bought me a circuit kit and I just started playing around with that. I just loved it so much trying to figure out how things worked, why things worked, and then um, seeing what else I could do with it. And so I think that was the first time when I was like, I really want to go into science. Yeah, so from then on, I kind of just got into research and then my love for science just grown exponentially. Those circuit kits really promote creativity because you can essentially build your own system and place those items in a different order. You said that your passion for science grew from there. When was the point when you've had a specific field, in your case, material science, in your narrow scope of interest? I first actually started with math. So I really love math from like an early age and I love, well, I first started with competition math and I just loved like the quick paced nature and how it also required that critical thinking. The start of high school, I started getting to higher level mathematics, working with proofs 
and things of that nature. And so combined with the love of math and the love of physics, I really wanted to just try something new that sort of had real world applications, but also encapsulated lots of science fields. And so for that, I looked at material science because of its interdisciplinary nature, combining chemistry, physics, math, biology. And so that's how I really first got started in material science. Great preparation because you are were part of the science ball competition as president of your team. And you really have to think fast and be at top of your game. So that could, um, you know, translate into research and promotes critical thinking. For sure. I definitely think that science ball um, and those quick pace comp- like math competitions, like math counts and AMC were definitely a good gateway to get me started into research and higher level thinking. Absolutely. You participated at ICEF as well. A lot of podcast members are from the ICEF 2019 or 2018 and the virtual one as well. But what prompted you to conduct research in blood diagnostics? Back in ninth grade, I had taken my first blood test ever. Um, I went into the hospital thinking it was just going to be a short, quick thing where I get in, they stick a little needle in, I get out like a almost like a flu shot. But what ended up happening is I'd go in, I waited for like 20 minutes on the chair and this, and the doctor there brought out this really large needle. <laughs> At the time and still now, to be quite honest, I am very scared of large needles. I was not a big fan. So I was, it was actually later that month, I was reading up on a story of the company Theranos, who claimed to have developed a low volume blood testing method which required only a prick of the finger. And I thought that was really interesting because especially for people like me that don't like large needles, that could be an effective alternative. When I was working at my lab at ASU um, in material science, I was thinking about how we could apply the technologies there for the purposes of blood diagnostics, especially since at that time, it had been sort of outed that Theranos was a fraudulent company and didn't have real results. So I was thinking, well, what if we could do something with the existing technology to create a way to do blood tests? And so uh, my research primarily focuses on the elemental composition and electronic bonds between semiconductors. So I was wondering if I could apply those solid-state techniques to blood. I see. And I think that a lot of podcast listeners now can just um, feel empathy towards your story because uh, myself included are not big fans of huge needles. You know, the doctor usually tells you the traditionalized story that, oh, it's just going to be like a bee sting with vaccines or drawing blood, but it's nothing like it. And not just um, that it's not a fast paced procedure in the hospital. It can take you 20 minutes, just as you mentioned. And they can also draw a considerable amount of blood and that can induce hospital-acquired anemia. It was also one of the key points in your research that um, motivated you to, you know, find a better solution. How did you go about um, bringing in that novel element component? Right. So the problem with current blood testing today, actually, is that it's done in the liquid state. So that might be pretty normal for us when we think about it, that all blood testing is done in the liquid state. But the problem with that is that it requires a lot of intermediary steps in separating the blood into different components, analyzing each component, and then determining the composition. So we tried a drastically different approach. We first tried by solidifying the blood into what we call a homogeneous thin solid film, or HTSF, and then analyzed it using solid state technique. 
But in order to solidify it into this uniform thin film, we actually need to develop a new coating. And so we call that coating hemodrop. Um, it's a hyper hydrophilic, so that means it absorbs the water in the blood so rapidly that it forms this very uniform thin film, and that allows us to do the solid state testing on it. And so some of the benefits of our method is that it reduces the cost of analysis by over a factor of 50. It reduces the time from a couple days to simply five to 10 minutes for the entire analysis process. And it also reduces the volume needed. So with ours, it only actually does require a simple prick of the finger and it requires about a thousand times less blood. That is truly revolutionary because it's not only quicker and more cost effective, I guess, but uh, you can also test for different levels of um, components in the blood like electrolytes or iron levels from just these tiny little droplets, right? Exactly, yeah. All we need is about five microliters of blood and we can do, we can determine your elemental composition to within 99% accuracy in just five minutes. Congratulations on the project. Really admirable is that you did not stop at just the research level, which is in itself an accomplishment, especially at the grounds of ISEF, but you took it to the next level of business. Before diving deep into that field, uh, we have to talk about ISEF and the whole experience. Um, as an ISEF alum, what are the most memorable moments you would like to include in your highlights reel? So I got to start off for sure with the pin exchange. Um, I think just walking into that big ballroom and seeing all the ISA participants there and getting to meet everyone was such a cool experience, especially getting to talk to people from different backgrounds and different states and different fields. It was, I think, a nice way to get to know a lot of people and also see what's really happening in the world of research today, especially at, with people at such a young age. So I think that was definitely in my top three. Um, I also really liked the Just Dance at the Quad. I think for my team, that was a staple where we go just to hang out, um, spend a couple hours. So I think that was probably one of my more uh, favorite experiences. And then I also quite liked Public Day. It was nice to get to meet people that didn't necessarily have a strong science background and explain your project to them to help educate like a more general public. And so I thought that was really cool that we were able to have that opportunity to talk to people um, that don't necessarily get the opportunity to just do research all the, all the time. You know, most of uh, the people answering this question mentioned the pin exchange or mixer. Just that's not so much, but I think it was such a cool activity too. So it just proved that young scientists have got some moves on the dance floor for sure. <laughs> Sometimes it can be a challenge to translate complex concepts in your research in a way that the general audience can grasp it and have that aha moment. For sure. I do think it, that, especially with science, a lot of times it's easy to get boggled down in the, the minute details and focus really on the research. But it, I think it's also really important to keep in mind that the research we're doing is to help the world. And so we need to... Uh, make sure that we're communicating that with the public also so that they know what's happening and that we're able to most effectively serve our purpose in helping others. Absolutely. I, I agree with you on that because 
we can get lost in the microscopic view, but when talking to people, it's essential to move outside of that zone a little bit and uh, highlight the aspects of your research that can be correlated to everyday happenings, like drawing blood in your example. And talking about um, drawing blood, you are mm-hmm. the VP and exactly. co-founder of Microjob Diagnostics. Um, so you essentially took it to the business level, your project idea. What have you accomplished so far? I know you have now multiple products and patents. So what are you doing at the company? Yeah, so we've been trying to develop an array of products. So found that we could do the elemental composition for blood. And so we wanted to see if we could do the same thing for other liquids, sweat, urine, um, water. And so that's really what our company was about. It's mostly about, that's why we coined it micro drop diagnostics, because it really works for any liquid. So, so far we've filed a couple patents um, for our novel coding and for the design of the testing strip. We have also reached out to many other researchers and other companies and um, especially some big companies that I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention have reached out expressing their interest. We are planning on moving forward with that in the near future. But for now, what we're really trying to do is make sure we have a near perfect product So that way that there's no mishaps like Theranos. And we want to make sure that we're backed by as much science as we possibly can before taking it completely public. You got to have that work behind the scenes covered and completely consigned before moving into the next step. I can see that big companies would be interested in it. And I can totally get, get that you cannot mention them, of course, on the podcast, but we'll hopefully see their names promoting Hemodrop and Innovadrop, right? That's the one of the products. Is it uh, related to um, sweat or urine? What does Innovadrop stand for? Innovadrop was a term we coined as like an overarching term um, really just used for any liquid so within an overdrop we have a specific products like humodrop which is for sweat and we have other products like that but specifically an overdrop is just for any liquid to determine elemental composition so encapsulating all the possibilities and bringing that innovative component. How do you envision the company develop in the future? Um, it can be five or a 10 year plan or you know the whole vision of your business. I think ideally we would, so I think for now or like the short term plan is just to get these patents approved. So that way we can um, sell these products as a, at a reasonable price, especially in the bio industry where there tends to be high markup on um, drugs and other biotesting services and products. I think it's very important to keep it cheap and readily accessible, especially for those in low-income areas. And so I think getting the patent is really the first step to doing that. After that, we like to grow into local pharmacy chains like Walgreens, CVS, and hopefully keep our testing services in those pharmacy centers. A pre-direct plan because the patenting process can be a strenuous work and it usually involves a lot of paperwork and paperwork is only fun in origami much in real life. Um, so I think that's really essential that you're focusing on that. And of course, protect uh, the product, which is essential in today's world. You've mentioned that you conduct research at ASU. 
And I'm wondering that you might spend a considerable amount of time in the laboratory. But how did the current pandemic situation affect your investigation process? So it's definitely slowed it down quite a bit. Um, so we actually stopped going into lab around February or March, right when quarantine was initiated and when ASU started getting a couple cases of coronavirus. So since then, we've mostly been just focusing on data analysis, making sure that our results from earlier were accurate and that the new results that we've gotten that we haven't like measured and looked at really are up to medical standards. And so that's what we've been working on, just the data aspect of it. We are trying to develop at-home labs that do meet the safety requirements, but also the um, lab basic lab criteria. And so that's what we're trying to do to help further progress the project in a whole. But it's been a little bit slow considering that we aren't able to physically go to the lab and have access to the expensive technology that we usually are able to. It poses some several difficulties, especially when you conduct a research that relies on laboratory work. Great to hear that you wish to transition that environment inside of the homes, of course, keeping all the necessary requirements, but sort of tapping into not the DIY, but inside the home biology that can promote a lot of research work in the long run when, you know, others start applying that in a standardized way. For sure. I definitely think that, especially for developing like a medical product like this one, I think it's important to make sure that yeah, while it does work in a lab environment that's very clean and sterile, it also should be able to work in a home environment and out in the field um, where there are contaminants, where there are surface pollutants. And so I think that it this pandemic has given us that opportunity to focus more on the more realistic aspects of it also. Yes, it's like you've got the theory uh, covered, but it works quite a bit differently in real life scenarios. And yeah, just as you've said, you have to count in those external factors in the equation. Talking about remote research work, you're a 2020 RSI participant. Uh, what did your summer research work focus on? So I worked with Dr. Zhiguang Lu and Dr. Nicholas Fang at the MIT Nanophotonics Lab. And my work was focused on solar absorbers, specifically solar absorbers that absorb light in the UV invisible light range. And so my project was um, about developing an optimized absorber design that maximized the amount of light that the absorber would absorb. And so the reason we want this is for applications in solar power harvesting, thermal imaging, and also detection of solar radiation and how that can harm the skin. So it's a variable sensor. Exactly. I don't know how much you can reveal of your research, but what type of material did you implement or what was your methodology when creating that sensor? Typically in this field, uh, one of the more common materials that's used is gold. So for our absorber structure, it it consists of a metal top layer, an insulator middle layer, and then a thicker metal bottom layer. But when I say thicker metal bottom layer, I'm still talking on the scale of nanometers. So all in all, it's very small, which allows it to be used in um, flexible wearable sensors, as you said. And so applications such as iWatches or Fitbits, stuff like that. So some of the materials we used um, in our simulations was that we used 
gold for the metal, and then we use this ionic gel material for the insulator layer. I, I suppose it's structured in a way that maximizes efficiency with the addition of those materials and having a wider range of applications by implementing nanomaterials just as you've expanded on. In order to maximize the absorption, we actually had to do some design of the shape itself of the top gold layer. And so we were trying like an elliptical cylinder design, a box design, um, a pyramidal design, a trapezoidal array design. And so we really just tried tons of designs and really altered the different parameters to see the trends. And then in the end, we decided that the pyramidal design was the best and had the highest absorption across the range we were looking for. And so that's what we ended up proposing. It just really highlights in the fact that structure and function are generally intertwined. And you had to choose the best fashion design, in a sense, to maximize that efficiency. Definitely, yeah. When we're talking about RSI, that was the first online and virtual event. Um, could you tell more about your virtual RSI experience and how do you evaluate the whole six, six weeks? Yeah, so going into it, uh, I was a little bit skeptical about how things would work out and whether we'd be able to get the full experience that previous records have been able to get. Just because since it's not in person, you it's harder to communicate with your fellow peers and with your mentor. So I was just a little bit skeptical going in. But the counselors and the TAs and all the staff did a really, really good job of making sure that we got the best experience possible. And so I'd like to thank them especially. Um, we were able to have a lot of really cool experiences throughout. So we still had... We had some really cool lectures, such as uh, Professor Scott Commoners, Dr. John Mather, who got a Nobel Prize in Physics, Dr. Wolfgang uh, Ketterly, who also got a Nobel Prize in Physics. And so it was really cool to meet these very accomplished and very talented individuals who are well-respected in their fields. And I think that, in combination with being able to meet like-minded peers um, at our side from different states and different backgrounds, similar to ISEF, was a really cool experience and it it was really nice to get to meet new people and bond with them over shared interest. That's amazing that you get to listen to truly and literally noble minds who've done some exceptional works in their field. You said that you could bond with those scientists even if you could talk to them via chat and FaceTime. Even though we were online, it didn't really feel like we were totally online since we were able to see each other and still share the same jokes and still talk about um, what was happening in science and then also what was just happening in our lives in general. So I think that was really cool since we were able to still get to meet new people. Yeah, and that photoshopped RSI picture group photo is... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so there there were a couple things that we missed out on um, from not having an in-person RSI experience, but there were definitely people at the camp that did make up for it. So the famous RSI group photo, um, I, think, I think it was Shruti from Ohio that photoshopped all of our faces onto last year's group photo, and I think that was, that was really cool. Definitely did make up for not having the... <laughs> Yeah, kudos to Shirley. It was really great because sometimes you couldn't even tell the difference whether it was shot photoshopped or not. So I see with a lot of free sharing and posts that you've had a heap of 
inside jokes floating around that were created uh, during those six weeks. Yeah, definitely. There's also a couple Easter eggs in the um, the group photo if anyone wants to take a look. I know there's a floating head or two somewhere in there. That's always fun to look at. Yeah, awesome suggestion for a bit of work after the podcast. Back to accomplishments and competitions. You are the winner of the Arizona State Top Pitch Competition and Global Semi-Finalist. So in this competition, which company did you choose to try to report on and essentially defend? Me and my partner chose Intuitive Surgical. Their stock uh, symbol is ISRG. And the reason we chose this is because at the time they had recently developed the Da Vinci surgical system, which used robots for surgery. So you might have seen the the video where they had a robot doing surgery on a grape. Yes. And so that was actually this company that developed it. And so especially with um, Intuitive Surgical, they were developing a lot of things with using robotics for more precise and more systematic surgery methods and so we thought that was where the future was going especially looking at a lot of things like their price to earnings ratio and their assets and liabilities and taking into consideration a lot of factors we thought that this was a really good company to pursue and to look at how they were going to do and so that's why we chose to write a report and defend them Yes, robotics is a highly relevant field, especially when it comes to medicine, because I think that people are more open to accept new technological innovations when it's about our health and and concerning our state of being. Mm -hmm. That choice of the company of yours totally paid off because you won the whole stockfish competition. Yeah, it was was a good choice for sure. Uh, So we, me and my partner, Wesley Peng, we won the Arizona State Stock Pitch and then were invited to go to the global stock pitch. Unfortunately, it was also during ISEF, so I couldn't go. But my partner was able to attend, and he ended up winning the whole thing there, which was pretty cool. Really? Wow. Congratulations mm-hmm. to him. I'm sorry that you cannot attend, but you won another prize at ISEF, so it's a win-win in a kind of way. Yeah. It really is impressive what you, you've done with that project and how you analyze the company. Having that experience, what do you think, what are some of the qualities or techniques that mm-hmm. make an outstanding yeah. presenter or pitcher in your opinion? I think especially when you're pitching a company or an idea, it's important to keep in mind that not everyone there has a very technical background and is very well versed with your company. So you need to make sure that at least in the beginning and then and then finally in the conclusion, that you're re-summarizing the key points that truly make this company worthwhile. Talking about the product itself and why it's so important. I also think it's important to look at the management for a company. Um, so as Warren Buffett outlined in one of his famous essays, he said that one of the most important things he looks at when he invests in a company is the management. And so I think especially when you're pitching a company either by yourself about your own company or pitching someone else's company, it's important to take into account the people that are running the company. And I think that's a huge factor. I think it's also important to keep in mind that not everyone's going to understand every single thing you say, but it's important that you try to keep a good balance between that technicality and then that colloquialism so that as big of an audience can understand, but you also are getting the details across. 
Yes, having the best of both worlds to get your message across. It's really interesting what you said about um, actually team management, like the people standing behind a company. I was reminded of one of Jim Collins's expansion on this is each top performing company, you can see that they really got their um, team management in an impeccable manner. And we're not just solely talking about technical skills, because skills can be learned, but character, not so much. That is truly going to pay off in the long run. Um, that's why they use some type of Navy or Army questions into interview process. Who, what do you think about like uh, the mm -hmm. people who consist of a company? Or was it something you focused on? Yeah, so for when we were doing Spock Pitch, the people were, and especially an important part, the team at Intuitive Surgical, um, had lots of experience, they had good morals. And so I think that's one of the deciding factors because especially with a company, it's sure the product is important, but it's also about the people who are running it, who are the foundation for the company itself. And so I think it's more important to invest in the people um, rather than the product because the people are ultimately the ones who are making the choices and determining what's ethical, what's not ethical, what should we be really doing. So I think that's what you should look for when you are investing in something. Absolutely. They really create a dynamic that essentially jumpstarts and uh, continues to push forward the ideas of the company and that are who are really able to sustain it. It also has an effect, I think, that in your personal life as well, the, the people you surround yourself with, having researcher friends can also galvanize you in your own investigation process. Yeah, for sure. I do think that having people that also understand how research works can help you uh, make sure that you're on the right path and that you don't deviate from science. Because I think science is especially very important to making sure that we understand what's happening in the background, as well as how we can apply that in different ways. And I say, I think without science, you really can't have a product or an innovation. I think that just basing it off of hopes or belief isn't enough. No, it's just merely a dream. When there's no execution, there's uh, no real life application. You've expanded your mm -hmm. zone of influence in a way because you participate in several types of volunteering activities. What are some of the takeaways and lessons uh, learned through working at homeless shelters or tutoring children? With volunteering, I think it's I do think it's like one of the things that every single person should try to do as much as they can. Um, especially since not everyone starts at the same circumstance or has the same opportunities. I do think it's important that we try to help those who are less fortunate than ourselves. And so that's why I like volunteering. And I think that's why it's important because it, it shows that we as a society are able to come together for a cause greater than just ourselves and are able to give back when we have a bit more. And you also get to meet people from different walks of life and it just teaches you empathy and how you can really actively help someone and participate in their lives only if it's just a few moments. But I'm sure you can attest to this fact, but they do make such a stark difference. Yeah, I do think there are many important lessons that we can learn from um, volunteering, especially the fact that you have to look at think through other people's perspectives. And while it is good to keep a level head and to keep focused, it's also important to think about how others um, view a situation and how a certain instance or event might affect them. 
absolutely. And you can also see how the efforts you've poured into, for example, tutoring children pay off when um, they, they get the mathematical skills and foundations because are not just going to be applied in classroom settings, but they are just going to be so essential components in their life in general by, by promoting that analytical thinking. Well, now the podcast, we also focus on presenting the person beyond the project board. That's why we're getting on a personal question that what would constitute a perfect day for you, COVID-free and all this pandemic situation? Perfect day. I think it would start, a perfect day for me starts pretty early. I would say uh, 4, 4.30. Wow. I'd get up. Uh, me and my dad would go on a hike to the nearback mountain called Camelback Mountain hike for a couple hours, see the sunrise come up, take a nice shower, eat definitely chocolate chip pancakes for breakfast. And then by that time, it's probably around 8, 8.30. And then that's when I like to really start my day, get into the work. I like to get some work done in the morning when I'm fresh and bright and uh, my brain is at 100% capacity. And so I like to work from about like 8.30 to noon, noon I'll have lunch. And then in the evening is when I like to go outside with my friends, play ultimate frisbee or play some tennis. And then in the night we will come back, play some cards. Um, Monopoly is a really popular one or Settlers of Catan. And I think that would just be like a perfect day knowing that I was able to relax and but also get some work done. Yes, and you really start the day up early, but it completely sets the tone for the follow-up activities. You know, there are a lot of motivation videos out there, and I've talked to participants who either, you know, sleep four hours during an e- during the night or have those little fractions between the day, but I think in general, it can really transform the day, and you have time for fun activities like playing cards. Monopoly really reflects, I think, on your business side, <laughs> and you like strategize with Catan. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I wish I was better at Monopoly, though. I don't think I've won in a while. <laughs> I just like playing it, but I don't think I'm that good at it. Not good investments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. On the if question side, if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you choose and why? So out of the people living today, I would probably want to have a dinner with Elon Musk or Bill Gates. Um, I think it's with Bill Gates, I think it would be interesting to see um, his initiatives and where he thinks the world should go, especially as such a big philanthropist and with lots of ideas on supporting renewable technology and supporting a better world for the future. I think it would be interesting to see his perspectives, especially since I agree with him for the most part on um, what he thinks should be happening for for making sure that the future is safe. So I think that would be a really cool conversation to have, um, especially over dinner. I'd also like to talk to Elon Musk just because he seems a bit more out there and more um, extravagant with his ideas. And so I think that while Bill Gates is more of a realist and likes to focus on how we can get the world going, Elon Musk is more creative and he thinks about what would we like to do as a civilization in the future? Like, how are we getting to Mars? How are we getting past that? And so I think that would really be cool to talk about new ideas that for now might seem like science fiction, but in the near future could be really true. 
they are actively shaping the future of science or the tech industry. And I also like how you reflecting on the personality differences because you would have a nice mix of being someone realistic and someone like Elon Musk, who's more of a mastermind, a visionary uh, on the personality scale. Ideally, I'd like to have a dinner with both of them and just see them talk out what they think would be the best plan for the future. I think both of them have some really great ideas. And so, especially when you put a visionary like Elon Musk with a realist like Bill Gates, I think it would be interesting to see what they would come up with. Absolutely. And talking about um, future alterations, if you were the one who makes decisions and be part of that brainstorm session, what would you alter or any type of, you know, outside of the box solutions that you would like to bring forward? Uh, so I recently saw a video on Bill Gates' new initiative for clean water. That was a little bit shocking, but also very interesting to me. So I'm, he used... Um, water from fecal matters and from uh, droppings to create clean and renewable water. And so I thought it was a really interesting concept because you would think that it's really dirty, but the way he was able to develop a invention that was able to produce really, really clean water was super surprising to me. So I think something like that is what I would like to develop something that has lots of applications, but something you wouldn't think of immediately, something whimsical and fun like that. Absolutely. It's uh, not your traditional crappy idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, it would be really interesting to see what you can bring out of waste, essentially. Definitely outside of the borders of your um, hygiene zone, per se. But I mean, anything is possible. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> now we're at the this or that game. So as the name suggests, you got to choose either or. Okay, the first one is tennis or ping pong? Tennis. And you're a tennis player as well. Do you like to do it um, individually, one against one, or in a group setting? In a group setting is a lot more fun because you have people to talk to and it's also not as personally straining. So you have a partner that... and it's about seeing how well you can bond with that partner. So I think it's a lot more fun uh, playing with someone than playing by yourself. So I, I definitely like doubles a little, a lot more. There's strength in unity. Mm-hmm. The second one is peanut butter or Nutella. Ooh, probably Nutella. <laughs> I actually have a bottle of Nutella on my desk right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a, it's a, 33.5 ounce bottle of Nutella that's just sitting here for some reason. I like to put Nutella on a lot of things. So yeah, definitely Nutella. <laughs> <laughs> wow. On your chocolate chip uh, pancake after a morning walk, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, or just in itself out of a spoon, I think is, is a delight in itself. <laughs> that's perfect too. Honestly, Nutella, I don't see anything wrong with Nutella. It's a, Perfect, perfect creation, in my opinion. One is piano or violin? I would say violin, just because I've played violin for a few years now. And so I first started, I think it was three or four years ago. I was just listening to one of the orchestras playing. And so I was really captivated. And that's when I just started liking how the violin sounded. And I thought, okay, maybe 
you know, after a few years of learning how to play the violin, I could get to this point. And so I've loved violin ever since then. It's a wonderful instrument. That is awesome. And it really does require a lot of practice. One of my uh, friends from high school is a violinist. She's been practicing a lot. I know that she was playing more traditional, like classical music, but some type of, um, you know, recreations like the Caribbean's music or something like that, <laughs> or the, the price of the Caribbean. Favorite piece would be that you like playing on your violin? Uh, probably the Barber of Seville. It's it's a very fun piece to play, and I think it sounds really nice too. Like a da 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 da. So yeah, <laughs> I like a clear explanation. <laughs> I think that most people would not really get, or you know, just at first hearing what you refer to. But with your addition, I think we all know the song you're talking. Traveling to Asia or Europe? Ooh, I have traveled to Asia probably more times than I can count on my fingers. I, I mean, I have a lot of family there, so I go to India quite often. I think probably traveling to Asia for me because I just like the culture a lot and I like being able to see my family. So it's always a nice bit of time when I go to Asia. Absolutely. Uh, a home away from home in that sense. The last one is music related. Um, so not really classical, but would you opt for pop or rock? Ooh, I would probably opt for pop. What's your go-to jam to do Just Dance to? Oh, Just Dance. Uh, Havana by Camila Cabello. Unana. <laughs> yeah, that's my go-to jam for Just Dance. I also like, um, oh, I forgot the name now. It was a, a Korean song, but I forget the name. Gangnam Style? I don't think so. I'm sure it'll come back to me next time I play. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of um, hits from Korea. Or perhaps, be, wait, I'm not sure. Maybe a lot of people are going to hate on me now. But <laughs> is BTS Korean? Uh, yeah. I don't think it, I think it was a Blackpink song, actually. And I don't know that brand. I think we're going to delete that <laughs> section of the podcast. <laughs> Fans are going to attack yeah. us. <laughs> okay, and um, well, for the uh, wrapping up the episode and uh, really encapsulating all the things we've been talking about, what does science mean to you? Oh, so that's an interesting question. Uh, science is so broad and so fast. So I like to think that science is just being curious and exploring the world around you to try and get a better understanding of how things work and why things work. But I think for me personally, science was just a way to satisfy my random questions throughout the day and trying to understand, okay, why does this clock swing back and forth? Why does my fan keep on swinging? Um, how does my laptop work? How am I seeing stuff on my TV? But I think it was just a way for me to try and understand what was happening around me and trying to satisfy that, that curious little boy inside. Such a beautiful expansion, really. Um, that hunger for knowledge and exploration is so vital to 
not just research skills, but to life. I think that even though perhaps someone who is not invested in science and listening to this podcast can receive a lot of lessons that they can implement in their life. And I'm just really glad to uh, hear you expand on your novel technologies and how you are transforming the way standardized testings or uh, blood drawings are working, all the amazing